You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The podcast today is sponsored by Warby Parker. W-A-R-B-Y-P-A-R-K-E-R. Warby Parker is a maker of great eyeglasses be sure to head to warbyparker.com slash myhistory to order your free home try-ons today. They're going to send you a box and you get to try them on. It's great. On a hilltop in western Massachusetts, a man in threadbare linen, patched up cotton trousers, and a crooked corn hat, extends a musket. He's defending, as he sees it, his liberties. And at the end of his weapon's line of fire is his tormentor as he sees it. Yet, if we could reverse now, spin and look around from the other side, we would see not a red coat, not a British soldier, but a similar-looking Yankee man. He might have the same musket, maybe a nicer federal one purchased from the French during the Revolutionary War. He may have the same trousers, with a few less patches, perhaps. Two armies on two sides of a standoff on a bitter cold day. Two groups of New Englanders. And a scant four years before, they both would have fought side by side in the American Revolution. Now both just as equally feel they are fighting to preserve liberties that were gained in that conflict. It's a standoff that could very much determine how the Republic goes. And yes, on that hill, in that snow, some of the world we know today may have been etched. Though they can't possibly know it. There are shouts, calls for surrender on both sides, calls to let us pass. Equal calls to go home. Ignored. The tension mounts. A general in blue and buff with a sword orders his men to load. Another general in blue and buff and a sword orders his men to do the same. Cold hands grip muskets tight. Freeze that moment in your mind. Zoom in. A government man. One of about 900 militia led by Captain Shepard circling the Springfield Armory holding the Continental Supplies. He is from Lincoln in the east of Massachusetts, right next to Concord. One of those famous Minute Men, the Ready Response, who responded to defend American rights and protect the arms of the new nation. Now he's responding to a call from the elected governor of the state in that nation to do the same. Zoom in. On the other side, a 
Captain Daniel Shays, farmer from Pelham in the western part of Massachusetts, also a veteran of the Battle of Concord, as well as Bunker Hill, as well as Ticonderoga and Saratoga. Initially a militiaman, Shays was promoted all the way to captain in the Continental Army because of his ability to lead. He wears his Continental uniform today. Since then, he's been brought to a debtor's court. He's been paid in what were revealed to be worthless scrip for his Revolutionary War service. Given a sword from the famous general, Lafayette, he has to sell it to keep his family sustained. That's not why he's here, though. He's a very reluctant leader. He insists years later, leader of them I was not, just one of many committeemen. There are other names that didn't get recorded as well in history. Luke Day, Agrippa Wells, known as Captain Grip, Henry McCullough, who during this day is on a horse shouting at the men. Shays at first refuses to lead the army that he's leading today. And it's only when another rebel leader, Luke Day, leads a revolution against one of the local courthouses, is imprisoned, and a mob forms to secure his release. Daniel Shays agrees to both lead the mob to shape its actions and to negotiate, hopefully, Day's release. As some historians note, this could very well have been called Day's Rebellion, but it's not. Shays agreed to speak to the farmers in his area with grievances, facing prosecution, facing foreclosure. He agrees, and once he does, he leads this group decisively. His men are not all well-armed. Some of them have their old Revolutionary War muskets. Some have sold them, perhaps to pay debts. Indeed, a sizable chunk of this group has nothing more than hickory clubs. But they have drums, and they have fife, and the drums play. And the other captains, along with Shea, lead the men up the hill in a column formation, impressing the other side with its order and discipline. The goal of Shea's and his men is clear. It is the Federal Armory in Springfield. If the Eastern Militia, sent out by the governor of Massachusetts, gets it, if they can hold it, they can expect a prosecution and wholesale imprisonment. The governor of the state has already suspended habeas corpus. It's no laughing matter. 27 men died in one debtor prison in Massachusetts alone during this year. They can expect their livestock to be surrendered, their cattle, their pigs, and perhaps the farm itself to be surrendered if the militia arrives. Some of them, now called insurgents and rebels in the newspapers in Boston, will go to jail or will be hanged. They call themselves regulators. And their aim, just like where the name comes from, the regulators that also rebelled in South Carolina and North Carolina before the Revolutionary War, their goal is to regulate the government of the state. It's only a small force that stands against these regulators. And with resolve, the regulators should be able to take it, or really they figure they'll be able to convince the other groups surrounding the armory 
to simply leave and let them have it. How did they know this? Because once before, just a month ago, Shays and his men had occupied a courthouse. And Shepard's men, same leader, had showed up to defend that courthouse, but was convinced to leave and let the Shays' men have it. They figure the same will happen again. Shay has just sent a note to the other leader, Luke Day, who is north of him. Together, they should have some 3,000 men against probably 900. And with arms, they can make this a real contest. Something else. Springfield has barracks, too. And the men right now are very cold. Yet, Shepard's men, now representing the state of Massachusetts, are just as determined. He knows that in a few days, Revolutionary War hero Benjamin Lincoln will arrive with a larger and better-funded army, the official government army of the state of Massachusetts, which the merchants of that state, including the governor, started a fundraiser and subscribed and supported. He secures the perimeter of the Springfield Armory with his men. Now, this is interesting because the weapons procured there are generally those purchased from the French by the federal government during the Revolutionary War. There's also an artillery park full of cannon, ample munitions, the kind of thing that could keep an army going for some time. It is not technically shepherds to take any more than it is Daniel Shays to take, technically. It is United States property, the property of the Confederation government. And the Confederation Congress has not authorized the state of Massachusetts to use it. But this is 1787. The national government is weak, slow. Answers take a long time. And rebels move on the double quick. Shepard is not concerned right now with matters of federal state jurisdiction. He pulls two cannons and puts them in front of the road by which the regulators must advance. In addition, he has a howitzer. We don't know everything that happens now, and we're not going to pretend to know, but we do know the results. There's a 1955 book, A Little Rebellion, that, in the style of books of that time, gives us what might have been a little narrative between Shea and a messenger sent. A little narrative, presuming to know the conversations. We'll indulge a bit, grain of salt taken with, knowing that something like this might have been said. Why will you deny us, Shays asks. I'm here in defense of the country that you endeavor to destroy, the messenger replies. If you're in defense of the country, Shays says, then we are both on the same side. The messenger responds, I expect we'll take different parts today. Shays says, The part that I will take is that hill. The messenger responds, If you advance... You will face the men we are both accustomed to obey. 250 feet separate the two groups, the bulk of which are former Revolutionary War soldiers. It's a tense moment. Alphaeus Colton is holding only a club, and he believes that the men across from him will never fire on his comrades. John Wheeler doesn't know that. He still owns his trifold hat, 
from his Revolutionary War days. And he is telling his men, I will reach the arsenal or the gates of hell. On the other side, David Hoy wears a moccasin coat and readies his rifle. He doesn't want to, but he will follow his captain's orders regardless of how ugly it might be. Both sides determine warnings unheeded, and Shepard orders the cannons to fire. But he orders them to fire over the heads of the regulators. Something else. Shepard does not, strictly does not, order his men to fire their muskets. Musket shot is too personal. Men on men. He figures that'll just trigger return fire. More determined fighting. The cannon shot over the head is hopeful, but not effective. Shea's men are not deterred. They advance. Prior to this, they had accepted compromises. They had accepted that perhaps the legislature of the state would do something about their grievances, that the courts would stop. They've always been denied, and this time they are not stopping. Shepard now orders a second shot. This time at waist level. It hits the body of the men hard. The shot of this time, the intention of a shot, is to stop a body of men from moving with ballistic force that can roll through several men. He orders the infantry to fire a howitzer filled with grape shot. The results are immediate. Three men are killed instantly. Another will die days later. Dozens are wounded. It is a day the likes of which New England has never before seen, says one man at the event. Murder! Murder! The men shout. Murder! There's a third cannon shot, and a fourth, and the regulators break. They don't all want to. John Wheeler there is telling his men to regroup. Bakalov is still on his horse. Shays wears his sword. Each of these committee members, commanders, leading men, Captain Gribbs, are trying to get their men to regroup. But it's no use. Adolphus warned the man we said was holding a club, realizes how pitiful the situation is, and runs. There is blood on the snowy ground before the army as the regulators retreat. This little firefight in southwestern Massachusetts is in a tiny village and should be of no consequence to the larger world, to the kings and queens of Europe, or even to the other states. Yet many are watching this. A French minister is sending reports about the Shayite activity he reads about in the Boston newspapers to his government. British merchants doing trade sum up the farmer rebellion as a credit risk. Another reason to drop the Yankee business. Boston merchants decry the dictator Shays who wants to start his own country, the newspapers say. Southern farmers watch the events and think about their chances. Four nearby governors are aware of and watching the rebellion. 
offering Massachusetts help. Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, diplomats of their country in Europe, trade letters about it. Benjamin Franklin, the president of Pennsylvania, fundraises and builds a reward for Shays, Days, and other men who are leading the rebellion. Sam Adams sees no patriotic motive in the actions of these men. He'll lead the Massachusetts legislature to develop a riot act. More importantly, from his perch in Mount Vernon, George Washington is desperate for dispatches. He tells Daniel Humphreys, former aide, please send me any reports that you are getting. Asks Humphrey to build a militia which might help combat this threat, which he does. He asks Benjamin Lincoln, Have your people gone mad? He writes Henry Lee, I am mortified beyond belief. This is embarrassing. He writes to Henry Knox, We should, by our conduct, verify the predictions of our transatlantic foe. More to Knox, But for God's sakes, what's the cause of these commotions? Is it British trouble or real grievances which admit of redress? If the latter, why are they delayed till the problem became so much agitated? There is a side story to all this. Uh, This is the so-called Shays' Rebellion. And that's that Washington certainly is getting reports that Shays and his men are stirred up by the British. And evidence of that has not been documented. But at the time, this is what many thought, and Henry Knox is also providing this information to Washington from his sources in London. The trouble does not start with the British. Picture a local constable carrying away the family's pig from their farm. The wife cries. Husband pleads, no. The pig that must be sold at a fraction of its cost now to pay the debt that you owe was the winter's food. And imagine how a neighbor feels. This is not a alienated modern world where we don't know our neighbors. These are your friends. And not only do you want to help them, but you worry that you may be next. And it's not just pigs being sold. It's all sorts of items that they can grab, and eventually, it's the family farm. This is why you join the town meetings. And when the town meetings protest and dispatch grievances to the legislature and they're ignored, this is why you join assemblies. This is why you form outside halls of government and courthouses and taverns. And when all of that doesn't work, this is why you grab your musket if you own one. What happened to cause this unusual tumult? Well, the way to look at the years after the American Revolution, especially in rural areas, is that of a large Recession. It doesn't get talked about that much in in our history, a little bit, but revolution ends. And there's what can only be described as a recession, perhaps a depression. 
low prices combined with a lack of hard money, high debt loads, no economic demand. These are all the economic terms. Let's explain what really happened. It starts with a bit of a boom. The revolution ends with a bang down south, the Americans and the French at Yorktown, trap Cornwallis. But it takes a while for peace. The British still occupy New York City, hold the keys to an extent. By 1783, deal is worked out, evacuation happens, and the United States is a nation. This is great for a lot of reasons, but for one, there can now be trade between these two former warring powers, and everybody is excited about this. The United States, even as an independent nation, is still going to Britain for the bulk of its trade. It's the most logical. It's the largest partner. There are other ones. All right. Well, if you got a chance to see some of the photos that I had on Twitter, I'm at myhist on Twitter, of me with the Road to Now podcast, Ben and Bob, as part of the Avid Brothers at the Beach Festival. It's a great time, and we did a live podcast about U.S.-Mexico relations. Now, you'll see me there sporting my Hawaiian shirt, but also a pair of new eyeglasses, and I got them from Warby Parker. What's great about them is you get to try them at home before you buy them. You order five pairs of glasses on the website. They have great designs. For some reason, uh, there's a number of them that are named after presidential candidates. Maybe that's a my history can beat up your politics things. Roosevelt, the Wilkie, the Seymour. Now, I doubt they're naming their glasses uh, after the 1868 uh, Democratic presidential candidate Horatio Seymour. But I like to think so anyway. You pick out five on the website at warbyparker.com slash myhistory. And they're going to send five frames to you. You try them on, look at the mirror, see how they fit, ask others, and see how they really fit. What ended up happening, and I think it'll happen with you as well, is what I thought I might end up purchasing when I ordered it online, I ended up purchasing something else. So it was great to have that real-world try-on to be able to look into the mirror and see how they fit. I've worn glasses all my life. I'm a reader, as you know. Warby Parker glasses start at $95, including the prescription lenses. The lenses include anti-glare, very important, and anti-scratch coatings. There's a billion people in the world that don't have access to eyeglasses, and Warby Parker's doing something to help that. For every pair of glasses you buy, pairs distribute to someone in need. So I'm going to post a picture of myself with my uh, Warby Parker glasses on Twitter, so go check that out, of course. Do you have an iPhone X? If you do, be sure to download Warby Parker's app, where you can use their brand new feature. Find Your Fit uses the iPhone's True Depth camera to map and measure key facial features. Using these measurements, it recommends approximately 12 Warby Parker frames that are likely to best fit your face. But the first thing you're going to do is order that uh, try-at-home kit. Head to warbyparker.com slash myhistory to order your free Home try-ons today. British merchants, at first, are very eager to sell their stuff. And Americans are eager buyers. The British nation can provide credit to major merchant houses. French merchant sums this up well. I can offer lower prices. 
but the Americans go to the British as they can offer them credit. It's a flood of trade, and it seems good. War is over. It's time to build. Americans need nails. They need axes. They need window glass. Women are sewing, and they will buy fabric and thread, shoe buckles, yarn. It's time to farm, so plow ditches are selling. And every New England household needs pickling salt, maybe beef, and, of course, rum. So you might go to a store like John Williams Store in Western Massachusetts, Oliver Dickinson Store, Amherst. And if it's 1783, the great part of it all is that you can get credit from that store. Or you can pay in goods. You can pay in services, your own promise of labor. You can pay in your corn. You can give Dickerson your salted cod. You can give John Williams the grains and get stuff. Some ginseng, a little corn, a promise to do a little work. A yeoman can walk out with a great cloth or a nice pewter porringer. That's not the best quality, you know, that porringer in Great Britain they might laugh at. But here in the States, it's as good as it gets. Yum. Breakfast is better when you have something to hold it in. Commerce. Britain never really opens up all the trades. See, they are very willing to sell goods to the new United States. They cut off American ships going to the British West Indies. Uh, Rufus King, dealing with the Court of St. James, as the part of the national government says, The present exasperated temper in Great Britain irritated Englishmen and required some retaliation. It's true. But also, merchants are, merchants are sort of directing British policy and maybe directing British policy in a way that favors them long term. They want British vessels making these trips. So they allow imports from Britain as long as they're on British ships. American vessels are allowed to travel to Britain as long as they're carrying raw materials that Britain needs. Lumber's a big one. Cattle as well. Fish. There's never enough trade with France. Americans try the Barbary states, Spain, Malaga, Barcelona. It's rife with problems. Now the Yankee shipping has no British protection. They try the Baltic. Everybody likes New England salted cod, and they sell a little, but it's a difficult trip. John Williams, as we said, sells the ginseng he gets from Western Massachusetts farmers to China or tries to. But everybody's figured out that it's a hot market. The Chinese believe in the medicinal properties of that herb. And there's a glut on that market. And plus, the trip is arduous, and he gets half the money he expected. This is killing the American shipbuilding industry. So many businesses, merchants, are starting to get affected by this. In a way, if you think about Tom Paine's writing and the promise of how much America will benefit from independence, how big it is, how strong it is, how, you know, a continent is stronger than an island. It is kind of striking then in 1783 when one sees how important the British Empire and British policies, the whims of their government, still are to the United States. We're still their main customer. We seek them to be ours. 
Yes, there's a few merchants that can make a living selling French products. Yes, there are those that can import goods from the South and bring them to the North. That's good. What is needed is West Indies coffee, sugar, rum. And the British ship this to us, and we have no business back. British goods fill the stores in Boston, in Portsmouth, in Newport. In 1783, there's reports that these stores are stuffed with British goods. And boats are going back to England with America's hard money. There's an interesting comment from a person who had been a loyalist uh, in one of the Boston newspapers. uh, Such a scarcity of money has never been seen. Restrictions on trade deprive them of the benefits they were to have from their glorious independence. By 1784, there is a crash. Merchants can't pay, says Abigail Adams from London, 1784. New England merchants had so shackled and hampered themselves that they could not pay their debts. Boston merchants start going out of business. Four major London retailers will stop doing any business with American customers at all. Those that do will continue to sell, but will require hard money. Pounds, Spanish dollars, gold coin. There's never enough of that really in the state of Massachusetts. But everyone tries to pay the debts as best they can and improve their books. And so from 1784 to 1787, you have a downward financial spiral of debt. British merchants go after American merchants or retailers, wholesalers, you might say. The wholesalers go after their retail customers like Oliver Dickens, Dickinson's store in Amherst, or John Williams' store, John Worthington's store on the Connecticut River. John Worthington is called the River God because he's got a business that's pretty large and deals with most of the farmers in this area. He and the other store owners are going to try to get their money to pay these debts from the only way they can, the farmer customers, and to collect. When they cannot pay, they avail themselves of the court system. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As if all of this wasn't bad enough, the Massachusetts government enacts a tax. They've got revolutionary war debts to pay. And they enact a tax on real property and rents that adds up to about one-third of the income, either the land value or the rental value of the income, on those properties. It's a huge tax. Now, it's not only the merchants, but also the government that will foreclose on non-payers. There are 500 farms in arrears for tax collection, 1786. In the Hampshire County, Massachusetts court, court cases for debt collection go up 262% between 1784 and 1786. Here's what one farmer writes. The constables are daily seizing our property, both real and personal. Our land, after it is appraised, sold at one-third of its price. Our cattle by about one-half. It's a recession. Oliver Dickinson used to take goods, chickens, a promise to do work for payment at a store. It was three-fourths of his business. 1786, it's cash only. Now his store shelves are full, but his stores are empty. He's got no new customers, and he seeks payment from to collect from those. Some 18% of the males in western Massachusetts are in debt. Many of them will at this time be jailed until they can pay. Now, it depends on the type of leniency that the the area might show. In some cases, for instance, Luke Day is one of these that is put in jail for debt collection, despite his service at the Battle of Saratoga. He's allowed to leave during the day, see his family, and then come back, and he actually skips the jail, as some did. But some of them are more harsh, and they're actually men who die in debtor's prison because the conditions are terrible. Ethan Allen, the hero of Green Mountain fame, says that he had not a copper to save him from the devil. And so, in the town meetings across the state, in Hampshire, and Springfield, the Berkshires, Amherst, you see petitions, you see grievances expressed to the state government. Veterans of the war are remembering how the script that they were given after the Revolutionary War service just depreciated. And they want that advantage in their transactions. They want to be able to pay their debts in paper money. They want stays on the foreclosures of family farms until this crisis can be averted and their grievances dealt with by the legislature. Massachusetts is not able to discharge its own debt. And so the legislatures get the petitions, but don't listen. And so, all of a sudden, in Boston, they start getting reports that in these western courthouses, as court is about to take session, there are men coming, sometimes just with clubs or unarmed, sometimes just kind of standing in the courthouse. There are groups of men stopping the courthouses from taking place. In August 1786, a crowd of 1,500 people keep the Northampton Court from operating. 
In September, there's disruptions in Springfield, Great Barrington, Towton, Concord, and now there's a little bit of a break in October because, after all, these are farmers and they have to do their harvest, and you can only, in these days, protest so much. While they're harvesting in October, James Bowden, the governor of Massachusetts, asked for hard measures. The Massachusetts legislature grants it with the full support of Patriot and former rebel himself, Samuel Adams. Habeas corpus is suspended. A law is passed that any group of more than 12 people who are armed can be arrested. But more than that, sheriffs are empowered to kill rioters on the spot. Something else. Bowdoin calls the militia in central Massachusetts. But nothing happens with the governor's call. There's no available men because the men are participating in the mobs or they're more interested in their own farming matters and staying neutral. No one's joining the government. He's going to have to go back and form his own militia. And this is going to be formed of a lot of people in the city of Boston and in those sea board towns in Massachusetts. It's going to be formed of some former Revolutionary War soldiers, and it's going to be formed of some apprentices to major merchants and artisans in Boston. You're going to have just a scant few people from towns like Pelham and Amherst and Springfield, local people, very few join. One is Hugh McClellan. He's a former Revolutionary War, so he knows everybody, Shays, Day, everybody involved in this rebellion. But he decides to stand with the government, and he's going to play an important role later. Despite the measures being passed in December, there's going to be a crowd. It's going to stop the general courts of appeals in Springfield, Massachusetts. An army under William Shepard is going to go out there and try to protect the courthouse, and they're relatively successful in doing so, but the judges are convinced that for their own personal safety and the safety of the government men that they should not hear the case. So the militia leaves, allows Daniel Shays and his men to occupy and stop the courthouse. Soon no courts in the west side of the state are really functioning. Governor Bowden, the legislature is just as enthusiastic, led by Sam Adams, calling for arrest without trial anywhere in the state. It's a riot act, and it has a disqualification procedure. Anyone who participates in these acts will be forbidden from voting in the state, nor will they have the opportunity to serve in the public service if they participate in the rebellion. So it is this that brings up the conflict in Springfield and the retreat after that cannon flash. Daniel Shea's army seeks the Springfield Armory in a bit of desperation. After the habeas corpus is announced, there's a fear that everyone's going to be arrested. It's going to be hundreds of arrests. And it, there's kind of a difference in opinion, and there's people who kind of know the situation on the ground in western Massachusetts and those who do not. Some of the people in Boston are just, well, there's a, you know, a small group of people causing trouble. Let's call out the militia and stop it. Abigail Adams, writing from London, says, you know, it's a ring of desperados. Benjamin Lincoln, who's going to be the general that's going to put down a lot of this, responds to the 
uh, request at one point that if it's about just locking up a, a few people, they're going to have to lock up half the state. Now, there's more to the story of the encounter and the retreat at the Springfield Armory. The two leaders, Daniel Shays and Luke Day, had communicated. They wanted to wait 24 hours before attacking, and there's a lot of debate. It's not well known why this was. Everything from he didn't like Shays and there was a rivalry to he wanted to give uh, more of an ultimatum to Shepard, maybe to avoid bloodshed, to even that his Presbyterian minister had told him not to rebel. Whatever reason that, that occurs, this message is brought to a tavern to convey to Shays, and it's captured by Shepard. So Shays never gets the message that half the force won't be attacking along with him. Shepard holds, as we know. And so there is this 48-hour period where it's not clear what's going to happen because, okay, they won the first round, but maybe if Days and Chase gets together, they could take the armory again. Shays goes to his hometown. He knows a good defensive position there on hills, and he stays there. It is then when the well-funded army of Benjamin Lincoln arrives. Grabs a few cannon from the Springfield Armory. He once again wants to show flash and break up this motley group of rebels. Scatter them. His troops end up marching through a blizzard. They surprise Shay's men in the camp and capture 100 of them. The army then breaks up. Essentially, it's like you're on your own. Day goes to New Hampshire. He's actually captured. Shay's goes to Vermont. The people in Vermont are kind of sympathetic, not really asking questions about who comes and who goes, and Shea stays there. It would be a mistake to think that this rebellion of 1786 and 1787 was just limited to Massachusetts, or just limited to some guy, Daniel Shays. We already talked about how many other leaders there were in the group who were also Revolutionary War soldiers. It breaks out all over New England. In Exeter, New Hampshire, 100 men surround the courthouse to shut it down. There are similar protests in Vermont. In Rhode Island, there's a mob forms in front of where the legislature meets, asking for paper money. In Connecticut, there are riots. The New Hampshire rebels are operating very close to and very aware of the Shea rebels. But how each state handles it is a little different. In New Hampshire, the governor, John Sullivan, you know, he tells the rebels, I'll close down the courthouse if you disperse. And they do. They scatter. He then sends the militia after them and arrests the leaders. Rhode Island, and this is something that the other states are going to be angered by, especially Bowdoin and, and Sullivan, gives in to the farmers and enacts paper money laws. And the country party that represents more of sympathetic interests to these rebels, wins control of the government. Just Rogue Island being Rogue Island as far as the uh, hard money folks in the eastern part of these states in New England are concerned. By February 25th, 1787, Henry Knox is able to relay some good news to George Washington, and he writes back, On the prospect of the happy termination of this insurrection, I sincerely congratulate you. Happily that good may result from the cloud of evils that threatened 
not only the hemisphere of Massachusetts, but by spreading its baneful influence, the tranquility of the Union. There's a lot of discussion about what's going on with the rebels, and they still haven't captured all of them. You have Thomas Jefferson saying several times to folks that, well, you know, a little rebellion is a good thing from time to time. One of the things that Jefferson is going to say is that, look, you know, you have 13 colonies, and it's been, oh, about nine years since the creation of the nation, and you've had one rebellion. It's not really that much. Don't get so excited. I think some of the Jefferson's philosophy just comes out of who he was. He was a philosophical thinker. Some of it comes from being in Europe during this time, because the, the Adams has some similar feelings too. John Adams is over in Great Britain as the representative of the Confederal United States to Great Britain. He kind of feels that this all just started because Massachusetts set the taxes too high. But on the continent, there's some more concern. And James Madison, who's a member of the Confederal Congress from Virginia, at this time, an advocate of a federal government that's more powerful is writing to Washington that he's worried still because a new crisis may be brought by the measures for disenfranchising and disarming those who participated in the rebellion. The discontent, he says, is silenced, but not subdued. Madison writes a pamphlet that goes out. The Vices of the Political System of the United States. In it, he argues about how ineffective states were during this crisis. He also condemns states that are engaging in practices of paper money, closing of courts, using property as legal tender instead of money. It's not going to be a very strong country, strong political system, if these things continue, he argues. At the same time, he's not happy with how Massachusetts handled it. He complains to Thomas Jefferson about 1,500 soldiers being brought to be stationed in western Massachusetts. Here's Madison writing to Washington, and this is while the same time the rebellion in Massachusetts is going on, and the convention is about to start. Conceiving that an individual independence of the states is utterly irreconcilable, with their aggregate sovereignty, and that a consolidation of the whole into one simple republic would be as inexpedient as in unattainable, I have sought for some middle ground, which may at once support a due supremacy of the national authority, and not exclude the local authorities wherever they can be subordinately useful. I would propose that in addition to the present federal powers, the national government should be armed with positive and complete authority in all cases which require uniformity, such as the regulation of trade, including the right of taxing both exports and imports, the fixing and terms and forms of naturalization. So he's really working some problems out in his letter to Washington. And by the way, I think the letter's important because he's going to be successful in convincing Washington to come to the convention along with others. He's going to argue that a federal government will have a more balanced, neutral view. Look at one of the things he says. There has not been any moment since the peace at which the representatives of the Union would have given an assent to paper money or any other measure of a kindred nature. We understand that the discontents in Massachusetts, which lately produced an appeal to the sword, are now producing a trial of strength 
in the field of electioneering. The governor will be displaced. The Senate is said to be already of a popular complexion, and it is expected that the other branch will be still more so. Paper money, it is surmised, to be the engine to be played off against creditors both public and private. As the event of the elections, however, is not yet decided, this information must be too blended with conjecture to be regarded as a matter of certainty. Well, he was right. Hancock, I mean, a little bit more of a populist uh, thinking, is going to be elected to to Massachusetts. But I think you see in his letter to Washington, in his statement about the vices of the political system of the United States, in his letters to Jefferson, is where Madison sees evil in the system is not so much the rebellion going on in Massachusetts, but what state governments are going to do as a result of it. And that's part of the reason for the Constitution. Why do we look at Madison? Because he was one of the most important figures. Writing sections of the Constitution, coming up with the Virginia Plan, a group of people had agreed to, and it got modified at the convention. But he was a, a key thinker and then a key member of Congress afterwards. As there is now talk about a constitutional convention in Philadelphia to amend the Articles of Confederation, Madison makes it clear to Washington, your name cannot be spared. That Washington probably made a decision about this is evident in a letter of April. Henry Knox writes to a friend that it is probable that George Washington will attend the Constitutional Convention. June 1787, a small western Massachusetts town. Two scaffolds are set up, and men are brought to them, captives of the government army that's been assembled by the state of Massachusetts. Henry McAuliffe, former leader of the Regulators, and Jason Parner, another Regulator, who have been captured or set up to be hanged, and there's a crowd watching. The noose is actually put over the men's necks. And I think all around the area, people have been assembling, and there's one tavern in in Amherst where a group of the Shayite men, the regulators, are going to go take an oath and actually surrender their arms and they will be free of punishment. Though under the Massachusetts law at that time, they're going to be disenfranchised. The person who accepts this oath is none other than the one man in the local area, or one of the few who had sided with the government, Hugh McClung. And so he's able to get a number of people spared, but the leaders are not spared. And so these two men are brought in. There's a crowd watching. I mean, for most of the local populace, this is an extremely sad day. There's appeals that go out to the governor for these folks. You know, the, the, the mother of one of the accused men is saying, you know, he just got roped into it. He didn't know. He didn't mean to take arms. He thought it was going to be a peaceful march, you know, this kind of thing. For the government, it looks like they're going to make some kind of an example of these folks so that others don't follow in rebellion again. There's a lot of worries about what's going to happen when in rides, just almost like a movie scene, a man on a white horse with a letter. And the letter is from Governor Hancock. 
and Governor Hancock has decided to pardon them. But he wanted to put the men all the way through the experience and then pardon them at the last second. Sort of a form of benign punishment that would occur during this time. And they're not the only one who would get this sort of like, make you feel like you're getting hanged type punishment. Hancock is going to slowly introduce a more conciliatory approach to the rebellion. It's it's kind of an interesting event, Shays' Rebellion, in that the state government of Massachusetts changes right while the insurrection is still going on. They just happen to be having a governor's election. Of course, Hancock uses it to defeat Bowdoin. Shays is pardoned in 1788, and most of the men who are participated in the rebellion are pardoned and they're actually enfranchised. They will participate. They'll vote. Some of them will be at the ratification convention of the Constitution years later. Chase moves to Vermont, then he lives in the rest of his life in New York. While our false hanging was going on, at the same time, members are meeting in the same building where the Declaration of Independence was worked out and signed in the Philadelphia in a Pennsylvania State House in Philadelphia, members are meeting to create a constitution for the Union. So you have to see Shays is not only bringing on uh, the Constitutional Convention, but actually the, the insurrection still going on. It's on the minds of the members as they discuss things. The Constitutional Convention begins in May 1787. Shea is still on the run during the opening speech of this convention. Edmund Randolph mentions the disturbances in Massachusetts as an indication of the need for not just a little revision of the Articles of Confederation, but for an entirely new plan. And he does that in the opening speech of the convention. Oliver Ellsworth, another delegate, mentions that Massachusetts couldn't even keep control of a rebellion 100 miles from the capital. Elbridge Gary says that the leveling spirit had gone too far. Rufus King points out during the convention that look at how fickle states can be. One governor, Bowdoin of Massachusetts, wants to hang rebels. The other governor, John Hancock, wants to pardon them. But more than that, there are what you might call copycat rebellions. You men in Virginia protest against debt collections. And in May 1787, while the delegates are talking, King William County Courthouse is burnt down with all of its records so that no one can collect it. This continues, and there's several other court closings and some suspicious fires throughout Virginia. It's worrying people like James Madison. It's worrying people like Richard Henry Lee. In Greenbrier, 300 farmers storm the courthouse there. During 1786 and 1787, you also see disruptions in York, Pennsylvania, and in Maryland. Everybody meeting in that convention hall knew it. In the document that they create, there is specific language allowing the federal government to quell insurrections, putting the control of the militia in such event in the hands of the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States. But there's also something else. It's a little bit more of a two-way street than people think about sometimes. There's also a guarantee from the federal government that a state will have a Republican government. 
In other words, the federal government of the United States is promising each citizen of the United States that they will enjoy a Republican government. And if anyone tries to set up anything else, presumably, they'll have a problem not only with the citizens of that state, but with the entire United States. So that's in the Constitution as well. James Madison to Thomas Jefferson. My two last, though written for the last two packets, have unluckily been delayed till this conveyance. Your favor of June 20th has been already acknowledged. The last packet from France brought to me that August the 2nd I have received also by the captain. Three boxes for W.H., B.F., and myself. The articles included for Congress have been delivered, and those for the two universities and for General Washington have been forwarded, as have the various letters for your friends in Virginia and elsewhere. The parcel of rice referred to in the letter to the delegates of South Carolina has met with some accident. No account, whatever, can be gathered concerning it. It probably was not shipped from France. You will herewith receive the result of the convention, which concluded its session till the 17th of September. I take the liberty of making some observations on the subject. It was generally agreed that the objects of the Union could not be secured by any system founded on a principle of a confederation of sovereign states, of voluntary observance of the federal law by all the members could never be hoped for, be reduced to practice. Hence was embraced the alternative of a government which, instead of operating on the states, should operate without their intervention on the individuals composing them. The due partition between the general and local governments was perhaps of all the most nice and difficult. A few contended for an entire abolition of states, some for indefinite power of legislation in the Congress, with a negative on the laws of the states, some for such power without a negative, some for a limited power of legislation, the majority finally for a limited power without the negative. The question with regard to the negative underwent repeated discussions and was finally rejected by a bare majority. Without such a check in the whole, over the parts, our system involves the evil of imperia in imperio. If a complete supremacy somewhere is not necessary in every society, a controlling power is at least so, by which the general authority may be defended against encroachments of the subordinate authorities and by which the latter may be restrained from encroachments on each other. Would there have been a constitution without Shays' rebellion? I think so. I see the nation evolving from the Articles to the Constitution as what was going to be a natural process. You have trade problems with Britain. You have the inability of foreign nations to say, hey, you're a bunch of states and you don't agree on everything. How can we deal with you? You have issues of who's going to develop that Western land, this competition with other countries, competition with each other. Spain, who had declared war in Britain during the American Revolutionary War and supported us, now is blocking trade on the Mississippi. You have problems with interstate trade. There's a Potomac Conference actually held in Washington's house at Mount Vernon to try to settle navigation of the Potomac River between Virginia and Maryland. And I can't really come to an agreement. The recommendation of that conference is that we need a national system. Then there's a meeting in Annapolis in fall 86 
Not all the states show up. There's delegates from four or five states, but it's indecisive, but it's indicative of the momentum. So I do think that there would have been some kind of movement towards a better system just on trade and commerce issues alone, absent the Shays Rebellion. But the Shays Rebellion added a bit of emotional vigor to some of these efforts. And most importantly, I think, given the letters that you read, that it's Shays Rebellion that convinced Washington to come to the Constitutional Convention and act as his leader, something that he was always very reluctant. Once he gave up that sword, he was reluctant to leave Mount Vernon and would rather let other people handle things like that. Takes no part, for instance, in the Annapolis Conference. Now, if we say that it's because of Shays that Washington steps in, then we can say that because Washington steps in, you have a very different type of constitution, I believe, than you may have seen otherwise. For instance, because you have Washington there at that convention, everyone at the convention knows that he's going to be the first executive. I think you have a stronger executive in the document. So in that way, you have a direct connection between what happened with Shays and the regulators and the concept of a strong presidency. Because you have Washington in the room and what could have happened absent Shays and absent Washington's attendance at a constitutional convention, which might have happened otherwise, is you might have just seen a mere revision of the articles, or you might have seen a constitution that would have been changed in 15, 20 years. Shays helps to put forward a constitution and undermines to an extent the positions of the states at the time. There are two statues in Peter Sham. Massachusetts. One of the statues is built in 1927, and it celebrates the rout of Shays and the men trying to overthrow the Republic. And on the bottom it says, obedience to the law is true liberty. But there's a second statue right next to it. And that one was constructed in 1987. And it talks about how Shay's men were surprised and routed by an army financed by the wealthy merchants of Boston. And the bottom of that statue, it says, True liberty and justice may require resistance to law. These two dueling statues reflect the conflict over the legacy of what Shay's Rebellion means. And issues that we're still dealing with today. In fact, Shays Rebellion is rich in its connection to politics of today. I'm going to talk about several different issues that are debated today on which it... one is reflected in what we might call today a right of rebellion. Do all American citizens have it? The answer is not as easy as what it seems. I mean, read New Hampshire state constitution, not just the one from 1776, but today makes rebellion a natural thing. You can resist the government. And now New Hampshire's constitution is clear. It requires that you could resist the government if it is perverted and the public liberty is manifestly endangered. And that every other means of redress has been pursued. Maryland, 
the original Constitution of Maryland, requires the same thing. Wherefore the ends of government are perverted, all other means of redress ineffectual, the people may and of right ought to reform the old or establish a new government. But forget New Hampshire and Maryland for a second. Let's just look at the head of all the laws of the United States, the Declaration of Independence. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of those ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute new government. Whenever any form of government. So, one of those things that back when it was said, they knew very well of what they spoke. There was still a great fear that uh, foreign government or an internal dictator could take over a weak republic system and create a dictatorship. And you hear discussions about this all the time. Well, we have the right of rebellion. Senator Jody Ernst of Iowa. I do believe in a right to defend myself and my family, whether it is from an intruder or whether it's from the government. Should they decide my rights are no longer important. Now, there's been a lot of clipping of her quote where some people are ending at the point where it says an intruder or whether it's from the government. And not saying the last part. Should they decide my rights are no longer important? That caused a lot of controversy, but obviously not enough for her to not win the election. This is the way many feel. So I think Shea's rebellion in and of itself doesn't add a lot to the Second Amendment debate. Actually, all the precedent there is that in Western Massachusetts, there are a number of people who had their own arms. Many of them were former Revolutionary War soldiers who kept their arms. There was ownership of arms, and they kept those arms at home. There was also a large station of arms in the Springfield Armory, and there was a desire on the part of the government to not have access to that go to any group in rebellion. But in terms of individual rights or the Second Amendment, I don't think Shays adds a lot there. It's on the next set of debate that you're seeing, which is is one of the justifications for arms to defend yourself from a government. And what type of arms can you own? We'll get into that second part a little bit later. Let's start with the first. If we consider that Shays' Rebellion is a founding event of the Constitution, I think it tells us a lot about what how the Constitution should be interpreted, uh, would seem to be logical. One of the things in his letter to Jefferson and to Washington, uh, Madison complains about the authorities in Massachusetts disenfranchising and disarming the rebels. Now, I think that's an interesting point. In no way is Madison a support of insurrection. In fact, he's very scared by it. But he is concerned about the Massachusetts government then taking away individual rights. And he includes arming as one of them. So you see a clear distinction among all of the actions of the government in between the individual right to keep and bear arms and the right to rebellion or the right to get a group of people together and rebel because you don't like an elected government's policy. When a group of people, and keep in mind, this is a group of people that if an election were held in western Massachusetts, they would be in the majority. This is a group of people that if a militia was called to constrain them, they wouldn't join it. So in this area, they had the majority of opinion. 
and they felt they were right to take arms. This was a rebellion that everyone felt, and you got Franklin, you got Sam Adams, you got Washington, you got Madison, you got everyone felt should be crushed. Now, Thomas Jefferson's a little more sympathetic, says a little rebellion from time to time is good, but actually, if you read what he's saying, he does think that the rebellion should be put down and that he feels that people should be given the facts. He feels that the reason for rebellion is that there's not enough education of the individuals and they should be persuaded with facts and debate and given an opportunity to better participate in the political process. But no one's siding with rebels in terms of their ability to overturn the state government. In fact, this is a great fear, and it's embedded in the Constitution with mechanisms for the federal government to stop it. How do we then put these two issues together? Because I agree they're contradictory, and that's why it's great in political debates. I mean, we could go on this one and just, you know, you'll, you'll see those debates on Facebook where it's just boom, 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 one after the other, one after the other. And I think in most cases, people on one or the other side of a debate are only thinking about the points that support their argument. And so you can go on forever because no one's really interested in putting it together. But if you, if you start to meld these things, here's where I think it goes. There is support to say that uh, you need an armed populace to protect against tyranny, and that's what the founders, if you will, wanted, because they certainly set up those mechanisms, and they certainly tolerated and supported people keeping the arms. The, the Continental Congress, in lieu of being able to pay soldiers, which we'll talk about, allowed people to keep their weapons. I mean, right there is a symbol, among everything else, the second and everything else, is that there was a certain right to arms, a right to keep and bear, and things like that. There was a concern about tyranny, a 18th century concern about tyranny, a concern about tyranny that you have to put in the perspective of that time. Even when there's a constitution and the nation's being founded, that there could be a French fleet, a British army, a Spanish army coming from the south. And the experiment with democracy was so untried at that point that there could even be an internal threat where someone takes over the mechanism of government and starts a tyranny. And by that, meaning that they end the Republican system. There was a real danger of that then. With each year, the danger got less and less. So I think you have to look at a concept like that, like a concept of what tyranny even means, and look at it from a 18th century perspective and think about if it's even relevant to a debate today. Because the misuse of those type of thoughts and those type of concepts that were real in the 18th century that may or may not be real now would be that tyranny is any time there's an opposite political party in government or the government's doing something that I don't like. One of the things that's going to happen after Shays' Rebellion and after the new government is formed is that Henry Knox is going to be made the Secretary of War and he's going to ask Congress, and they agree, to create more armories. So you had that federal armory in Springfield. You also got one in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. You're going to establish one in Harper's Ferry, Virginia. There is one established in Fort Washington, which is now downtown Cincinnati. Uh, there's fortifications at Annapolis, all owned by the federal government. He's going to ask that they be strengthened and preserved. So there's an interest from the early federal government from the very beginning of preserving large-scale weaponry and ordnance. 
big debate. Eh, I don't know if it's a big debate. This is a small debate that even has some very vehement gun rights people arguing among themselves, too, is that can you own anything? Does the second give you the right? Now, the Heller decision, 2008, says that there's not a right to any weapon whatsoever, any time. Can you own a tank? Can you own a bazooka? Can you own a rocket launcher? The argument on the other side is, well, you can own anything that the army might have because you have to be ready as an armed populace to one day face the army in case there was tyranny. But I think Shays' rebellion is illuminating in that respect in that there was an attempt to take a federal armory and the government responded. And in that armory, there was an artillery park. As I've said, you know, history might be very different. We might have at, le- at minimum two states of Massachusetts and maybe two different countries in that area if Shays was able to obtain ordnance weapons. As you saw in the Springfield Armory battle, that was decisive. There wasn't a musket shot fired. So ordnance in those days could decide battles. One of the most important things for when the British Army occupied Boston during the Revolution is that we were able to bring siege guns overlooking Boston when the British were forced to leave. So a lot of those battles at that time revolved around who could get cannon and who couldn't. So you see a big debate now about what type of weapons somebody can own. Can you own a tank? And by the way, there's many states where you can. In most cases, you're supposed to remove the armament on it. What kind of weapons can you own? The point you'll hear is that, well, people owned private cannon in those days. And I'm not disagreeing with that point. I do think a lot of the ownership of private cannon was in a couple of ways. To then donate to a militia use, usually the private person raised funds. It was the only way the army could raise funds in the Revolutionary War days in some cases. Private people raised funds for the benefit of the association, the Continental Congress. They then donated their efforts, donated their time, donated their equipment to the militia purpose or to the Continental Army. And Alexander Hamilton is one who drills with a private artillery company in New York prior to the revolution. Another group that might have owned some kind of large ordinance was those who owned ships, those who engaged in privateering. However, I think that has to be seen that the Use of those cannons was limited to shipboard use. The use of armories by the federal government, even before it was a federal government under the Constitution, even as a confederal Congress, demonstrated that there was a desire to keep ordnance separate from arms and, in some degree, to keep a large amount of arms separate. That there wasn't a total commitment to an absolute Lack of a standing army, as there always was one, even when it was small. I think that this event in American history is seminal. It's rich in precedence across a variety of issues that we're debating right now. It's also useful for understanding a precedent of protest in the early American public. And that there was a tolerance of setting up a system where you could quell the rebellion but let's institute some pardon procedures because that's reflected both in the actions of, say, John Hancock and in the system that we'd set up in the federal government. And when there's Whiskey Rebellion, the 1790s, and George Washington goes out with his army to put that down, he's also going to use those pardon powers in the same way. 
If you're looking for a precedent of how protest is handled in a Republican government from the very beginning, you can't keep courts from functioning. You can't keep government from functioning. But we're going to try to address grievances through the Republican process. There's another issue that Chase brings out, different one, and this is the issue of returning vets, because it's the entire story of Shays Rebellion. Daniel Shays, Henry McCullough, Luke Day, all of them were heroes of the nation. They were treated terribly, never given the promised pay that states and the Continental Congress had promised them. They were paid in worthless script securities that were rendered worthless during the period we're talking about. And then later, when the Constitution is founded, they were bought up by speculators who made fortunes on them. And we discussed a lot about James Madison in this cast. And you may have seen a little bit more of a Federalist side to Madison in that. And I think because of the time period we're talking about, this is where his head was. One of the things that's going to turn him is going to be the treatment of veterans. When we do a federal government, when we do a consolidation of all the debts of the states of the Revolutionary War into the federal government debt, and there are securities, he's going to want to make a provision to reward veterans who previously owned these securities. And it's voted down. And that's one of the things that's going to turn a bit politically against some of the larger expansions, the type that, that Hamilton's doing. Now, In the case of the Revolutionary War, veterans, American governments are going to start to issue pensions, at first for disability, then just for service, and also then to some wives and family. Daniel Shays himself applies for a pension. In 1818, he gets it. It's a reminder now, as we have many returning vets, that... We don't have always a great history of treating them well, and as a nation, we can do better. Hope you enjoyed this look. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you go there, one of the things we have, there's a link where you can donate. Make any donation. Thanks for listening. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.